Welcome to CTRM Radio, home of the official podcast of Commodity Technology Advisory and your source for information on all matters related to CTRM. Hello and welcome to another edition of CTRM Radio, a podcast from Comtech Advisory. This is Gary Vasey and today's edition is going to be on the regulatory environment. We'll be speaking with a couple of regulatory experts over the course of the show and examining the current state of the regulatory environment within commodity trading and risk management. To get started, I talked to Aviv Handler with ETR Advisory and a well-known regulatory consultant in the energy and commodities space. So it's been just over a year since MIFID II started to apply, which was on the 3rd of January last year in 2018. And um, when MIFID II came in, what I think we saw was a transition from the age of new regulations to the age of what I call making it work. So prior to that date and on that date, we saw many, many new rules coming out, uh, which impacted our industry in energy and commodities in Europe in particular, really starting with EMIR then moving on to remits, then MAR, and then MIFID II. And what we found was that every couple of years we were hit by a new regulation. Uh, Those rules originated from two places. One was the crash of 2007 to 2009, a whole host of rules implemented in many countries uh, to reduce systemic risk. So in Europe, we saw EMIR to a degree, MIFID II. In the US, we saw Dodd-Frank and in other countries, other rules. Uh, The other set of rules relate to market abuse and certainly the perception by the public at the time that the market was a bit rigged against them. So we saw rules such as MAR, which is an enhanced version of previous legislation, such as MAD and Remit, specifically for the gas and power market. So those new rules all came out And what we found since then is that we're dealing with making them actually work. And that happens in several ways. Uh, First of all, they start to get enforced. So on the anti-abuse side, we've seen several cases, uh, both before then, but particularly after then, uh, in terms of market abuse. We're seeing quite a lot of activity there. And that's leading uh, to uh, many resulting activities, such as the rollout of trade surveillance systems in the energy markets and also in the wider commodities markets as well. Uh, We saw other levels of enforcement as well. We also saw several other things. We saw people trying to consolidate what they did uh, in terms of systems. Uh, So we see a bit of a move towards more efficient reporting and centralized reporting. We saw many changes and we see that permanently with rules. We see Q&As coming out, new rulings coming out and that sort of thing. We see a desire to reform some of those rules. Uh, So in the case of EMIR, for example, we see what we call the refit process, which is an attempt to learn lessons from the original implementation and resize it. And for the most part, refit will make EMIR easier to comply with for those in energy and commodities, which is good news. It's likely to come into force in the middle of next year, but uh, we see changes and we'll see other changes in terms of remit as well. Uh, What we also see in general is the maturing I would say, of compliance departments in energy and commodities companies. Uh, While all of this was quite new when it all started and people were very focused on just complying with rules, we now see a focus on things like governance, on conduct risk and other associated matters as well. So that's what we've been seeing in general. And then we've had events, the the most interesting one being uh, Brexit. Um, So Brexit isn't something that originated because of regulatory change, 
but Brexit has quite a large regulatory impact for certain people. And those people are usually those who are based in the UK or those with significant positions on UK venues or other activity uh, related to the UK as well. So that has led to regulatory change, but the origin isn't regulatory change. It's something else. It's uh, uh, some other process. And uh, so, so those are events that take place as well that impact us. So that's where we are at the moment. And so as a result, we see that uh, the main activity, certainly from where I'm sitting, is on the one hand, anti-abuse work, particularly for not only the implementation of surveillance systems, bulking out and maturing the compliance function so that it looks more and more like the compliance function in a a bank or a financial services institution um, and dealing with changes on a more systematic basis rather than just seeing a change and reacting to it. People are starting to put in place processes to uh, realise those changes as well. That's where we are. And is there anything else other than the the refit stuff that you mentioned coming up or or is that the bulk of of the, the effort from a regulatory perspective going forward, do you think? No, I think there are other things going up. So in terms of reporting, uh, there is a plan on the remit side to change some of the reporting formats that's been announced by ASA. Uh, They last announced that it would probably go into effect either at the end of this year in Q4 or at some point next year. So we have possible changes to remit reporting formats. I wouldn't expect them to be major. Also on the remit side, we've seen a desire to legislate for certain things that aren't that covered at the moment, particularly on the side of algorithmic trading. So in the energy market in particular, uh, there is no regulation around algorithmic trading as there is on financial instruments. So if you are uh, carrying out algorithmic trading of any sort on a financial instrument, you are subject to certain parts of MIFID too, even if you're not a MIFID company. And if you carry out high frequency trading, uh, you may not use what's called the ancillary activity exemption, but that doesn't exist in the spot energy markets, despite the fact that there is a lot of algorithmic trading going on there, uh, there are some aspects of those rules found in the rule books of exchanges and uh, of venues, um, but there is no legislation there. So something that's been indicated by various legislators is that that will be addressed in the next EU parliamentary session um, when that starts uh, later this year. Uh, also on the remit side, there's likely to be more legislation input into the disclosure of inside information Uh, on inside information platforms and web feeds so we can expect some work there on the remit side so quite a lot of change on on the on the remit side on the mifid side in terms of mifid things are quite quiet at the moment i would say Uh, i would say that uh, mifid 2 hasn't been all that impactful uh, on the energy and commodities industry it has to some degree but not as much as we thought and that's quiet at the moment so we'll wait to see what's happening there and finally on the anti-abuse side just cases that come out uh, give rise to new interpretations all of the time as well. Yeah, and there's been some pretty hefty fines. So um, I, I was quite surprised to see uh, see the level of some of these fines recently. Were you expecting that that sort of degree of uh, punishment? The levels of fines are interesting. So on the one hand, we have seen some fines on the energy side, and some of those have been high, and some of those have been quite low. You know, depending on what you think, uh, we saw quite a large transaction reporting fine, which is on the anti-abuse side, which in the banking industry under Mifid One came out this week, and that's quite interesting as well. We have seen those sorts of fines before levied on large investment banks. Um, But the fact that those fines continue to be levied, uh, which you would expect, uh, is something that we in energy and commodities need to take note of. So the EMEA reporting uh, rules have been enforced for quite some time. We haven't seen any energy companies, as far as I know, being fined for failures there. 
we do see refit coming to make that a bit easier perhaps when refit comes and makes life a bit easier uh, we we would want to make sure that we're actually doing what we still need what we still need to do correct on the anti-abuse side this is a very different thing for the most part on the anti-abuse side, people are struggling to work out still what is and isn't allowed. Uh, interesting, this is a very timely conversation. So not uh, an hour ago, ASA released another paper discussing uh, sorts of abuse on the market, this time spoofing and layering. I haven't had a chance to read it yet as it um, literally came out a few minutes ago, but there is more and more focus on defining for the energy markets in particular what is and isn't actually allowed so we saw cases around capacity hoarding uh, recently uh, coming to a conclusion. And there also, uh, there is certainly a lot of discussion as to what should and shouldn't and what is and isn't allowed. And that makes life difficult. And that's in the energy industry. If you look at other commodities, I would say that um, where we don't have remits, but we have MAR um, and we have other rules worldwide, I would say there there's even more of a struggle uh, to work out how anti-abuse legislation should apply to those markets with the physical element. If you were to consider the last five, six, seven years, the sort of length of time that, that you in particular have been focused on the regulatory side of all of this, what would you say was the biggest transformation in the industry that these regulations have caused or been responsible for? I, I think that the transformation that's still going on is is the is the taking of compliance seriously in a financial sense. You know, energy companies obviously have to comply with lots of energy regulations specific to their markets, and it's always been taken seriously. And to a degree, financial regulations have as well. But it's it's this slow maturing and slow changing of the culture, which we also saw in the financial services industry as well. That's happening in energy as well. So and and also in other commodities, the making much more central compliance so that it moves from a, a tick box sort of thing to something that's fundamentally at the heart of how the organization works. I think that's a transformation that's taking place initiated by these rules. So it goes through several stages. You know, stage one is you know, in some cases just get it done as easily as possible. So when you see a, you know, your first uh, data reporting rule, you just try and comply as easily as possible. Uh, when you see a rule that requires you to monitor you know, an initial reaction of a, a company that's immature might be to work out whether it's really in scope and you know, let's try and do as little as possible and take a tick box approach. And what you see over time is that that matures and goes into a, you know, let's let's adopt best practice. Uh, let's monitor everything that we do to let's inst instill a culture in our company where we all want to do the right thing. Not that people didn't want to do the right thing before. I'm not I'm not convinced that the market was uh, full of people trying to abuse the market and rip off the public. That that, as far as I know, did not happen. Uh, but having doing the right thing at the heart of the culture is very important. Uh, the FCA uh, in in issued an interesting paper last year all about culture in financial services organizations and that sort of discussion i'm finding is happening more in the energy markets and in the wider commodities markets as well now so you're seeing this transformation slowly happening in our industry as well thank you aviv well my colleague patrick reams in houston also talked to thomas lord who's president of dynamic commodity management and they looked at broader regulatory concerns in their discussion so, Tom, in terms of the impact of regulations that are, are pending and, and starting to emerge or, or have been put into place, what are you seeing as the, the significant impact? What are those regulations and, and what are the impacts? Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for the opportunity. I do appreciate it. I'm really going to focus on four areas that I see in a broad sense cover the type of impacts our clients are seeing. And I'll put them in the concept of impacts on fundamentals 
impacts on liquidity, impacts on your cost of doing business, and impacts on you driven by your investors or owners and things you might be perceiving coming down the road. In the area of fundamentals, we'll take the example of the new IMO 2020 and the changes from bunker into load sulfur diesel in shipping. I've had inquiries from people in a number of places and have actually gone out to refining and other firms to talk about their expected impacts of these. And what we're seeing people's internal studies to look at is an extreme potential for widening the diesel gasoline price spreads. And to the point where some people I think are starting to look at whether or not for example, some of the biodiesel-based fuels for low sulfur may become competitive again, which would obviously then have ripples down into agricultural products and others. So you're seeing IMO 2020 not just as a how are we going to invest, but for a short-term period, you may have a systemic impact across the crack spreads as well as potential ripple effects out into other markets that will provide uh, sources of liquidity and sources of fundamental supply into a constrained market. So that's sort of the first area. The second area we see is the potential for significant impacts on liquidity for products that people are either wanting to hedge with and or wanting to use as a, a price investment tool. And I'll give two examples of that. One is the obvious one in the in everybody's windshield, which is Brexit. What happens if the UK does a hard Brexit and now you have a standalone UK and a European regulatory environment that does not have a financial passport? Who are you going to deal with? Where are you going to be dealing? What are going to be the impacts of that, which could dry up liqui liquidity for a number of products? The second one, though, that we've seen is a reduction in liquidity in some of the Canadian energy products. And at least talking to people and talking to industry participants, it looks like that may be being caused by the fact that Canada still has yet to do any of their dealer to finalize in the Western provinces any of their dealer registration requirements. And some of the proposed requirements have very significant impacts on very small dealing activities to certain categories of customers. And that uncertainty appears to be driving some uh, shifts in liquidity between products and some drops in liquidity in certain products. So that's sort of a second area. The third area that we look at is what we call the potential regulatory cost impacts. I will say one that we're seeing across a number of commodities, energy, energy production. We also see it in the mining space. So any place where you're in investment in producing properties, and that is a increasing concern about foreign corrupt practices and anti-bribery risks. And that is actually driving implementation of e-communication tools that can address things that are normally not just the trading, but other pieces of the organization. And what we've seen is if it's being adopted for a Corrupt Practices Act and you're in an organization, you will use it and bring it further across into your trading environments. 
and so you're you will you may see that you're going to have infrastructure investment and operating investment associated with regulatory costs that are maybe coming from outside your perceived areas. The fourth area I talk about is impacts on your costs driven as much by your investor or owner groups as you will by true regulatory change. And where I've seen that happen is a increasing divergence in drivers for adoption of more involved and effective, if you would, trade surveillance, e-communication, and other compliance oversight tools that are being driven frequently by either Asian or European parents who are, who are who have a much higher cost, if you would, of headline risk of a incident or investigation occurring, and they are then therefore driving their U.S. subsidiaries to in, implement trade surveillance and or communication surveillance that is more reflective of your European uh, regulatory environment than it would be of a U.S sole sourced entity. The other place that I see this again in investor interest is in the M&A space or the expansion space where I have been working with a number of firms where it is we have an amount of money to spend and we're trying to decide where we should spend it and we are looking at the ROI implications not just of the investment in the operation but in the overriding burden associated with regulation and those regulatory costs are becoming part of the M&A decision. So those are four very broad areas that I think companies should be looking at as far as where regulatory change or regulatory environments may cause them to assess the cost or the opportunities for their business. We were very fortunate to be able to talk to two of the, the real experts on the regulatory side in, in Tom and Aviv, and there was nothing particularly of, of surprise in what they had to say, although I was glad that um, Thomas picked up on, on, on the new fuel standards regulation and took the conversation broader. Was there any surprises there from your perspective? No, I think he did a great job relative, again, to your point about the fuels reg. And, and I think we're that's going to be a very interesting development. Keep our eyes on both from a, a trading perspective and an operational perspective as these refiners have to kind of retool their equipment to address the low sulfur standards. That one to me is going to be a, a very interesting but significant development over the next couple of years. And then of course Aviv did address the Brexit thing which um, I don't know if you noticed but a couple of days ago there were I think eight votes in Parliament the answer to which all eight options was no. Uh, so there still remains a great deal of uncertainty around Brexit and what happens there and plainly there are a whole raft of potential implications that nobody can really start to address until the UK government delivers some kind of a clue as to what kind of a Brexit, if at all, it will be. So my take really is that regulatory uncertainty remains a big risk for people and that it really pays to, to monitor what's going on on a regulatory perspective. And of course, what wasn't covered, I guess, by the two speakers that we had was that there are a whole host of other types of regulations that affect certain supply chains 
in terms of import controls. And all of these have a significant operational risk perspective. And it just seems to me that we live in an era where these these regulatory operational risks are increasing. Unfortunately, regulations to a large degree, particularly in the U.S., are, are politics-driven. As, as elections occur, we get near elections or post-elections. You know, regulations are always going to be impacted by the political process. And, and so I don't think we can ever say we're in a, a stable regulation regulatory environment. It's something that has got to be continuously monitored, forecast, uh, and and accounted for in budgets and, and strategies. Unfortunately, there are so many open questions that it's always going to be the probably the, one of the most difficult things to, to try to try to forecast going forward. Yeah, and as a last thought from my side, it's not just the, the regulatory side, but as we often talk about, it's the stakeholder side as well, because the stakeholders are also subject to their regulations and I'm talking about people like lending banks, etc. And they need to do their due diligence. And so I think one of the effects that we're certainly seeing on the ETRM, CTRM side anyway, certainly in, in Western Europe, is that smaller companies that historically may have been able to rely on spreadsheets or homegrown solutions that weren't, shall we say, very robust from an audit- auditability and, and traceability perspective are now really beginning to move onto cheaper cloud-type Uh, offerings that are available in the industry. So from a vendor perspective, I think the regulatory environment is probably fairly good news. People are going to have to take a much more structured approach going forward. And, and But, you know, we have been saying that for the last several years, but I think it is truly continuing to occur, and, and it's occurring not only in the in the major trading regions, Europe and, and the U.S., but Asia Pacific and, and it, even down to Africa. We're seeing more and more pressure to become more structured in the way that they, they manage their business. So I, I think certainly you're, you're absolutely right in pointing that out. So there you have it, another edition of CTRM Radio, a podcast from Commodity Technology. Advisory. On behalf of Patrick and myself, I'd like to say thank you for listening. We hope that you found it useful. And I'd like to thank our guests, Thomas Lord and Aviv Handler. Keep an eye out for future editions of CTRM Radio. You can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course, CTRMCenter.com, which is a portal for all things commodity trading risk management. Once again, thank you for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to CTRM Radio, a podcast by leading industry analysts, Commodity Technology Advisory. You can find more information about us at ComTechAdvisory.com and much more news, views, research, and information on CTRM at the CTRM Center at CTRMCenter.com. Thank you for joining our presenters, managing partners Patrick Reams and Gary M. Basie and their guests today, and we hope to see you on a future edition of CTRM Radio. 